The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we have sung in several songs this morning about your your calling to us, your welcoming us in, in this last song, how you welcome us into your arms, that in Christ you are wide open and welcoming. It is truly your kindness, your welcoming nature that leads us to repentance, that leads us to turn and come to you. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, that you would this morning, in, in whatever way is needed, whatever way resonates with the particular people who will hear this particular message from this particular passage, will you, in whatever particular way it is, will you awaken in us need to come and press on us your arms are wide open to welcome when we come. When we come repentant and broken and lowly, we will find you gracious and kind and merciful. Thank you. Press that upon us, Lord, and draw us to you. Awaken us as a people and purify us and use this morning towards that end. Thank you. Amen. When I was in college, I read a biography of a Chinese church leader who traveled and ministered to churches in China many years ago, long even before the communists even. And one story from his ministry struck me and has stuck with me over all these years. One of the churches over which he had authority was plagued by some sort of relational conflict between two prominent men in that church. They, they could not get along, and it was becoming an ugly thing, and eventually the congregation called on this particular higher-up leader, the one the book was about, called on him to come to them and to resolve this problem. Well, he arrived and called a meeting with just the two men themselves. And they came and sat down with him in silence. They knew him, of course. He was well-known, and his ministry experiences were, were known. All the sacrifices that he had made ministry in China has never been easy. And his demeanor and his character and probably his body bore the marks of his long service to Jesus, the Lord. And he sat there and looked back at them for a few minutes three of them there in silence. And then looking on them closely, the older man finally began to weep. Not like crying, overwhelmed weeping, but just tears on the cheek, revealed in the dim lighting. Just silence, and tears. And then one of the two local men spoke up and apologized to the other, and then he vice versa. And they were restored to each other, and, and the problem was fixed in the church. It's a story that stuck with me. Now, I, I'm not sure of all the details, and I'm sure I'm missing some things, but something happened there evidently in which the importance of eternal things 
somehow that drew close to these men and in that moment, perhaps it was because it was embodied in, in this older saint and his grief over their sin. Maybe there was something that was awkward about an older Chinese man shedding tears over them, awakened, and maybe that awakened in them in some way, like how God must see the situation, how God must feel about this environment. I'm not sure what it was, but that it's, it stuck with me. And I tell it to you this morning why. To point out that personal loneliness and grief over sin sometimes somehow resonates with the heart of the Christian. Sometimes, somehow, it kind of it moves us, probably because that attitude and that demeanor in some way, it, it, it resembles Jesus and his attitude and his demeanor, gentle and lowly, weeping over the sorrow of sin and its wreckage. We, we see Jesus weeping over the, the sorrow of wrecked people, of seeing sin and, and grieved by it. And that, somehow, that, that approach and that grief, it touches us, and it's often effective in drawing us to repentance Often, we should keep that in mind and we should major in it. The story well illustrates that. And we need to keep that in mind because this morning, as we look at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in the beginning of chapter 13, Paul's experience will tell us that sometimes that approach doesn't work. It is always... True, for sure, it is always God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But sometimes it is not only the gentle and lowly, sometimes it is something else that awakens in us the need for repentance. And then his kindness shows us, he will welcome me with open arms if I come. And now I see I need to come. And sometimes I see I need to come through a grieving, weeping elder man. And sometimes I see I need to come when Jesus more firmly says, I wasn't making a suggestion. I am the Lord. Both sides of that are Jesus. And both sides of that should resonate with a Christian. Jesus is gentle and lowly and meek and he weeps over sin. And he is the Lord. He does not offer ideas and perspectives. He speaks with authority. And both of those aspects of Jesus, the the full-orbed complexity of his character, he is gentle and lowly, yes, praise the Lord, and he is reigning as Lord also. Both of those aspects of his complex character at the same time are equally committed, he himself is equally committed to purifying his church of sin. Through pleading and wooing, or if necessary, through disciplining and judging. He wants to awaken in his people the need for them to turn to him, promising when you come, you will find my arms wide open and embracing. But you have to come. That's what we're going to look at this morning. That's what we'll see Paul raising here at the end of this book with this, with this complicated church in Corinth. We're going to look at the end of 12 and the beginning of 13, and we're going to find there not just a message for wandering Corinth, but a message for all of us about how God is determined to do good to our souls, determined to build us up, 
by cleansing us from sin and making us the pure, spotless bride of Christ that we're made to be and that he's determined to make us to be. So let me read the passage, and then I'm going to draw two observations from it. I'm going to begin with something we looked at briefly last week in chapter 12, verse 20, down through 13, 4. Paul writes, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time that I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Pause there. Two observations from this passage, and here's the first. Jesus is lowly, but Christ the Lord will surely come to cleanse his church. Jesus is lowly, but Christ the Lord will surely come to cleanse his church. As we saw last week, verse 14 brings up the fact that Paul's still going to come to Corinth. This, the collection of money for the saints who are in trouble back in Jerusalem, that's still going to happen. But now it appears that that's going to have a different feel to it, this coming. Notice the repetitive nature of this point in, in verses 20, 21, 1, and 2. Four verses right in a row. I fear that I make that when I come, then I fear that when I come, and then this is the third time I'm coming. If when I come again, I will not spare them. Four times in a row, it mentions coming, and it's so stilted that he's surely trying to make something ring in their ears. Paul is coming. And that doesn't feel very happy. But he's certainly coming. And when he comes... Who is it that comes with him or in him or through him? When Paul, the apostle of Christ, comes, who comes with Paul? Christ comes with him and will speak through him. And you can almost hear, he can almost hear, we can almost hear somebody saying, Oh, come on. No, he does not. Paul is just a guy. Have you ever seen this guy try to hold a crowd? There's not much there. He's just so weak and meek and just kind of like wilting. There just is not much like power and authority. You don't, you don't feel like the almighty God. It feels like just Paul, a guy, come on. That's the criticism he's been dealing with, right? For, for a couple chapters now, he's been, he's been facing that from them. And up to this point, what has Paul's answer to that accusation or caricature been. Well, up to this point, he's readily embraced it. 
Yep. Meek and weak. He's boasted in it, in fact. He's acknowledged, I'm not a great speaker, sure, and I'm meek and weak. Uh Uh-huh. That is very Christ-like. He is, Jesus is the man of sorrows, and he is acquainted with grief, and he was rejected by people, and gently and mercifully turns the other cheek. That's Jesus, the lowly suffering servant, and Paul did very much indeed absolutely come like that and didn't hide that, majored in it, because that's Christ, and that's what every Christ-like servant is to be like, and that's at the core of Christ-like ministry. That's all true, and he's readily embraced it. But in verse 3, some people still say, I don't think so, and they're looking for more proof. And then Paul says, okay then, I am coming, and if you want proof of a different sort that Christ is speaking through me, you will get it. What he's talking about is very sobering. He's warning them. That if, as he fears, when he comes, he finds them still awash, verse 20, in quarreling and jealousy and anger, etc. Or even more, verse 21, finds them still in the sexual sin that has never been finally and fully repented of and turned away from. That if he finds them like that, when he comes, verse 2, he will not spare them. That's a shocking statement. I will not spare you. Of course, I'm nothing. He actually doesn't mean that. We talked about this last week. I am nothing. What I mean is Christ in me will not spare you. Christ in me, he is not weak in dealing with you. This is verse 3 and verse 4, but is powerful among you. You see the weak and powerful pairing there. It's in verse 3 and it's twice in verse 4. He's not weak among you, but is powerful. Of course, what I've been saying is that he was crucified in weakness, indeed, but he was raised in power, and that's where he is now, at the right hand reigning. And so this Christ in me, I I am like him, weak as a servant of his, but I promise you, in him I will be powerful among you. Weak and powerful. He's contrasting that back and forth here. Acknowledging all along that what I've already said, all that I've already modeled is not true and none of this contradicts that. That is true. Christ is weak. Christ is the suffering servant. But that's not the point here now at the end. The point is at the end that Christ is also awesome and powerful and awesome and frightening power that will not spare those who persist in sinning in Christ's church is going to come when Paul brings it. Paul will come and will sit in judgment over the church. And as he says, the evidence of two or three witnesses will establish the fact. He's alluding to something in the Old Testament saying there's not going to be any, any mistake in judgment. Probably he brings this up because he is emphasizing the second time he came and now the third time he's coming. I had witness presented to me the second time. I will have a third witness presented to me and as the judge, I will know what is actually true and I will make a right evaluation. 
and that I will wield the power of God against those that have not repented, and I will not spare them. It is hard to read this and not say, yikes. What does he mean exactly? Probably something fearful is what it sounds like. But it doesn't say. Maybe it's something like how God dealt with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Remember that? People in the church that God struck dead. Or maybe it's something like how God dealt through Paul with the false prophet in Acts 13, whom God struck blind. Or, like how God dealt with some of the Corinthians themselves. Do you recall 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Where Paul explains to them how they were dealing wrongly with the communion celebration. Drinking judgment upon themselves, he says. Which is why some of you are weak, and some of you are ill, and some of you have died. Paul clearly says, God brought to you weakness and illness and death as you drank judgment on yourselves. Or maybe it's like how Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, church discipline, where he said he would turn over someone from the church to the mercy of Satan. How merciful is that? To the mercy of Satan, so that Satan would in some way destroy him. Or maybe he means something just a little more generically, like Hebrews chapter 12, just the discipline of God against his people. Bringing on to us some sort of renewed hardship or affliction, some sort of confrontation, some sort of difficulty. Or maybe he means something like the blessing of God withdrawn. The Holy Spirit grieved will withdraw, will, will as it were, hide himself. He, he won't actually leave us, but he will, he'll, he'll go take a seat in the back seat and just say, you drive for a little while and see how that goes all by yourself. And he'll leave us as if we are alone in the raging sea. Or maybe all that we'll find is that nothing at all, nothing at all happens in this life and everything just peachy keen and we sail on just fine until we get to the end and find that we escape to heaven as through fire, losing everything and gaining what is due us for the deeds done in the body, whether they be good or bad. That's combining two passages from 1 Corinthians and from 2 Corinthians. All of those things I just mentioned, all of them are in the Bible brought by God against people who are clearly not Christians or people who are in the church and maybe are Christians, maybe not, or people in the church who clearly are Christians. All of them are in the Bible. And my point here is there's nothing specific mentioned here. God has all kinds of divine power to discipline supernaturally in alarming ways. And Paul, God, says nothing specifically about what it is that he will bring to Corinth when he comes. I don't know. And he says nothing specifically in any given situation what it is that he will bring to any church when he comes to cleanse from sin. The point is that he will come to cleanse from sin. Be warned. 
Why does he do that? Because he is holy and loving. The Lord, our Lord and Savior, is holy and loving and will not ignore sin in the church. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about the church. Will not ignore sin in the church. He came to deal with that, after all, not, not ignore it. He knew that the path of weakness was the only way to break the power of sin. And so he took the path of weakness and became a man and and went to the cross and died, actually, crucified from weakness on purpose. The lion became a lamb so that in that weakness he could actually pull a gigantic power play and break not just the penalty of sin but the power of sin, its hold on us and raise us to walk in newness of life. He came to deal with sin. How can we live in it any longer? He did not come. The the gospel of God's grace does not exist to coddle sin or to enable sin or to create a body of people who walk just like the world, but thank goodness are forgiven and will never have to answer for it. God's grace came to rid us of sin, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, to do us good. You've got to make the connection between holy and loving. He came to do that to do us good. Because all of this sounds like, uh, 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 until you realize, oh, Oh, he is uh, 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 against the thing that is death and destruction to me. He's not uh, uh, against me. He's against the thing that is death and destruction to me. That's good. All of this is to do me, to do you, Christian, good. Not to afflict you, to drive your sin away from you, to relieve you. And oftentimes, he'll come and sit amongst us and shed a tear, and that'll draw us to say, I need to repent and turn back to him. But sometimes he will have to say, especially when we are hardened against it, I am the Lord. I wasn't making a suggestion. Anybody who's ever disciplined anything, a child, an employee, a pet, anybody who's ever disciplined anybody understands that sometimes You need to, hey, hey, that wasn't a suggestion. And then say, okay, come. You're welcome. You come, come. This is is the goodness of God to, to do whatever it takes to strip away from us that which afflicts, that which destroys, that which hurts us and which hurts the world and tells to the world something that is not true, that God doesn't care about wickedness, that God does not care about evil, that God actually is very um, permissive and actually just lets us get by free. No, you know, God, God is actually holy and God is good and God hates evil and wants to drive it away. So it tells the truth to the world about who God is and it brings him glory and leads people to find in him relief. So it's good for us, it's good for the world, it's good for God that God is so drastically committed to driving sin away from his people. That's what we see here in a very unique and very 
emotionally charged situation in Corinth, which admittedly is not our context. But the same point about God's attitude towards sin, that is always our context, because that is always God towards sin. So we hear, we should see, and take from this, oh, indeed, he is gentle and lowly, and that is sweet and good. And he is also the Lord who is holy. And he will have a pure, spotless bride in, in our, our position before him, certainly. But that's the work of his changing our condition also all through our lives. He wants to remove sin from us and us from sin, to cleanse us. Do you think about that, about Jesus? Now, we've got to be careful how we think about this, because I'm, 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 I'm about to move into the second point, which is about repentance. But we've got to be careful how we think about this, because... I want to put that first point in front of you and say, do you think about that about Jesus? And then how do you think about that about Jesus? Because for some of us, we never think about it. Because any discussion of, I, I, I think I have at least attempted to, the past point that I've just finished here, I've attempted to present that in kind of an even way without a lot of fire in it. But I bet to some people it felt like it was a flame. Because we don't like to talk about sin. And don't like to talk about Jesus confronting sin. Why not? He is the Lord who is holy, holy, holy. And maybe what you're discovering is, I got kind of a gap here in my conception of Jesus. I only think about one half of him. I don't realize He's the Holy One who is a consuming fire. Or maybe what I just said, you just, under a pile of bricks, just added on three more because it's crushing to you because you think about it all the time. You spend really most of your day analyzing your sin and thinking like, how am I wrong? And what's, what's, what's messed up in me? And, and God must be so disappointed with me If that's you, I didn't present it like that. Did you hear it like that? Did it feed something in you that's wrong? Because what I said is the whole point of this is only to awaken you to repent. And what you will find is a God whose arms are wide open and who will welcome you and wants to embrace you and is actually trying to cut off from you something that would be destructive of you because he loves you. He's holy and loving. So we need to put together both of these things that he is, he, is, he is oh so sweet and gentle and gracious and merciful and kind and everything that you can think of that is, that is soft and he is also holy <clears throat> and everything that you can think of that is firm. He is a complex character. He is God. We are, we are not about, we Christians are not about navel gazing. We actually are about God gazing. And when we gaze at the Lord, what we see is the Lord who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger, but who does not like sin. 
Both. Now, how should we respond to that God when we conceive of him as concerned to cleanse us from sin? How should we respond? Well, we should repent. That leads us to the second point. Here's the second observation then. Repent now before Christ is compelled to come to cleanse you. Repent now before Christ is compelled to come to cleanse you. Paul writes this, and it has, it has some fearful stuff in it, especially that verse 2. But how does he want the church to respond? How does the Lord want his church to respond? Well, if you look again at verse 20, Paul fears that when he comes to Corinth, he will find them not as he wishes. Find them in sin. And then they will find him not as they wish. He'll find them not sparing. That's what neither side wants. So you flip it around. What he does want is he wants them to hear the warning written in this letter that they're going to get, they're going to receive before he comes, that they'll hear this warning, now read it, delivered from distance, and that it will never come to any kind of confrontation when he arrives because he won't find them as he fears he might. They'll repent. So we must turn from sin and turn to the Lord and do it now as we hear this. That's for us too. We're not in the same spot as the Corinthians are, for sure not. But still, we are believers. And for a believer, for a Christian, all of life is repentance. And I'm by no means the first one to say that. All of life is repentance. You don't just repent when I, I, get, I, get, I become aware of like some really big thing that I did wrong. No, all of life is repentance. Because constantly there is something seeping into me from the world, worldliness, and something rising up out of my heart, my, my flesh, that is contrary to God, and I have to put it off. I have to say no. I have to, like, changing clothes, some of the imagery used in the Bible. I change, I wash daily. I, I, this is my habit of taking off what comes on to me and putting on Christ. That's, that's all of life, that's repentance, to turn from the world and to him. All of us, all of life, continually, now, before Christ may be compelled to do something that would cleanse. So a good place for us to start would be to consider the specific sins listed here in this passage. The pretty ordinary common sins given in two categories. First, the sins of discord. The Paul anticipates being in the church there because he knows there's, there's some conflict between him and these other guys, the other false teachers. So we may be susceptible to these kinds of things in all sorts of contexts. They are the common sins of the enthroned self. Are you prone to quarrel? Needing, it feels like. Strongly pulled to spar for, so as to get your way, to get your rights, or at least to have your right perspective known and kind of honored. There are other sins of speech mentioned here too, slander, gossip. Do those things mark you? 
Are you jealous of others? When they advance or are acknowledged in some way and you aren't, are, are you jealous of them and you feel then something rising in you that wants to gossip, talk about them, or to slander them, to tear them back down to where you are? Is there anger within you? Anger is desire thwarted. I want something and I want it bad and I didn't get it. And so if I don't call it anger, I kind of say like, I'm just a little frustrated, but really that's anger. He's saying, my will should be done on earth and it isn't. That's anger, that's pride. Read that list. You know what the words mean. Hover over them for a moment and ask the Lord, is that me? Is that me? Maybe only in certain times or in certain situations. That's how it is for me with, with some of these words here. It's easy for, it's too easy for me to, to kind of stay at the, at the big level and say, I'm not a jealous person. I'm really not a very angry person. And then if I stop for a second and think about specific situations, I think, like, oh, except for there. I, I am kind of angry when that happens consistently. I am jealous of those sorts of situations and contexts and people. If I get, if I, if I, if I stay up here at this level, I can kind of give myself a pass, but I have to think about some specifics before I realize, oh, yeah. Is that you? I don't have a problem with jealousy. Oh, yes, I do. Actually, right there. So you ask the Lord, is this me? Is this word me? Is this me anywhere? Think about it carefully. Don't don't navel gaze. Don't think about it in a hyper-analytical. Again, our, our goal is not to focus on the sin. Our goal is to focus on God. But we must also consider sin, and sometimes we blow right by it because the world does not like to talk about these things. So stop for a second. Hover over these words. Lord, is that me? Is that me? In any situation. Here I am, Lord. I see the jealousy. I see the anger. Those are two that rise up in my mind for me. And I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And make me different. Make me one who enthrones you, who trusts you, not myself or the world. One who trusts you and, and believes that you actually secure me in my life. See, I want this thing because I think I need it. Will you help me to be a person who believes that I don't actually need that thing? I have you you secure my life. Your salvation of me and your promises for me offer me enough. Find a specific promise that speaks to your specific issue. For me, Psalm 84. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. See, I'm anger and jealousy. No, 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 Steve. The Lord bestows favor and honor. I don't have to get it for myself. The Lord bestows it. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So don't chase it after in a sinful way, Lord. Steve, trust the Lord. That, I, I picked that one because that applies to me. You find, Lord, is this me? Is any of this me in any situation? And then you find a promise that applies to whatever it is that's you. Lord, I'm sorry. Help me to believe this.
and repent to of any kind of sexual sin that may plague you. This is the second category. Paul brings up in verse 21, impurity, sexual morality, and sensuality practiced. You know, that they have practiced, it says, not just that they've been tempted with, the practice of. Those, those words are all different words that basically just like cover everything. The Bible's, that is, God's sexual ethic is good. God is the most pro-sex being in all the universe. Think about that. God's the most pro-sex being in all of the universe. He made sex. He made it what it is. He made it how it is. He made it how it feels physically and emotionally, mentally, etc. All of that is all because of God. And he knows that like any good thing employed outside of its boundaries, any good thing employed outside of its boundaries becomes a disaster. Fire is critical for life in a fireplace, in an oven, in the cylinder of a combustion engine. On your sofa or curtains, it's a disaster. God made sex and sexual activity, sensuality and arousal and enticement, etc., for one man and one woman in marriage, and anything else practiced is destructive impurity and immorality. And in the end, it hurts us. So it's not just about who or what you touch or look at. It's what's in your mind, too. And so then, same thing as before with with an open-handed, open-hearted, Lord, is this me anywhere? Take these words and take the whole broad category. I'm sure I don't need to elaborate a ton on what sexual sin means. Just take the whole broad category. Lord, me, anywhere? Where and when? Open-handed and open-hearted before him. And repent. Turn from it. Flee the situations in which it's hard to turn away from it. I think I've told this story before. We, we had friends, I mean, still have friends, but we knew them better longer ago, and they used to joke about making fun of themselves. Before they were married, they would say, we were dating and, and we would drive off together into the dark in the middle of nowhere, climb into the back seat, pray for purity, and struggle. They would laugh at themselves because like, well, duh. Don't go there. Not into the back seat, not in the car, not in the middle of nowhere at night. Don't go there. Don't do that. And it is appropriate to say, don't do that. Because there is something about don't do that that's in repentance. We make choices. We can avoid, we can avoid driving places. We can hold our tongues. We do so all the time. So don't. Or do if, if that's the right response. Make, it, make a decision. Start there. Repent. But don't stop there with just the decisions because what we're really after when we're talking about repentance is not just people who behave differently. We're about being different people. Do you see the difference? We're not after people, we're not after becoming people who behave differently. We're about becoming different people. And that's something inside that's different. 
Something inside of me that doesn't just on the, on the outside behave differently, but something inside of me that believes, that thinks, that loves, that wants differently. That values. And then that lives out my values and lives out my loves. So I live differently. But that's what Christ wants for you, his child, Christian. What's for, for the house full of his people. Not just that we would stop sinning, but that we would be like him. Different in here. That we would live, that we would walk in a new life that is in, in the heart first. And he's not going to settle for less, in fact. He, he wants our hearts before, in addition to, but before he wants our behaviors, he wants our hearts. And he knows that we struggle and fail. That's why he went to the cross. He, this is the sweetness of God. I mean, the sweetness of God is that he understands us. He knows who we are. He loves us as people. And he wants to pry away from us that which would destroy us. And we know, he knows how we work. And he knows, he knows we, we struggle to believe what's true. We struggle to know that he is good. We struggle to believe that walking with him brings to us life. And so he shows us and speaks to us and promises us to it constantly, constantly. And behind all of that has said, that's why I went to the cross to redeem you and make you new. If you struggle to believe that I bestow favor and honor, will you at least look at the cross and say, I did not come to crush you, so I probably came to bless you, to show you favor, maybe even honor. Work it that way. If you don't, if you don't come through the text of Psalm 84, come through the cross to Psalm 84. But that's who he is for us. Crucified for you in weakness, so as in power to bring you to walk new life with him. He's a great savior. So, so church, there is in, in all of this, there is, I, I hope, nothing of the tone of Paul's, I will not spare you. I hope you did not hear that from me. I did not mean to present that, like that. Because we're not in a situation where, where I would have any kind of the authority of Paul or I would be saying, like, we have been through this before, been through this before, and we're not going to go through this a third time. That's not us here. So I hope that was not my attitude here. But is God addressing you? Is any of this you? Open-handed, open-hearted, ask him. Because he wants, and I hope you want, to walk in newness of life. Perhaps he's calling you right now with word alone, and there will be no need for discipline because you will hear and repent. His kindness now speaking to you calls you to come. That's his goal, that's his heart. That's the purpose of the gospel. He came to die as payment for your sin in place of you. To give you a place to place your sin. Not, on, not, not in you, but in him. And when you, when you come, when you repent, you turn away from it and you come to him and say, Lord, help. 
what you'll find are wide open arms. You'll find not judgment, you'll find forgiveness. You'll find a smiling Father who welcomes you. That's the good news. That's the point of the gospel. So repent. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.